So why don't we get, begin with prayer? Father, we want to thank you that uh, this evening we had the privilege. It's really an honor to come together as a body. The word fellowship has significant meaning beyond just having in common. It's, it really was the way of life in the early church. It was the impetus behind the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread and prayer. And uh, so tonight we thank you that we can gather again together as, as a fellowship. And we also uh, just want to acknowledge that uh, you are working in so many people's lives. And it's amazing how your work uh, occurs in places that we would never think possible. And I was reading this morning and realizing that uh, our brothers and sisters who are in uh, countries where they are persecuted greatly for the gospel, that the, the, the church of Jesus Christ is flourishing. Where there's, where there's uh, persecution, there is a, a real outpouring of the Spirit of God and people are being saved. So we thank you for that. Now, Lord, we, we just commit ourselves tonight to the Word of God. We remember what Peter said uh, to the church when, when he made it clear that we are to grow in the knowledge and the grace of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's, that's the goal. I pray that, Lord, you would, by the Holy Spirit, give each of us a subjective focus tonight, but also a corporate in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're in 2 Samuel chapter 20. We've been working through 1 and 2 Samuel, and from here we probably will go into the Kings and get a different perspective on what's happening to Israel. Um, tonight's going to be an interesting story. I think there's some very relevant focuses within this chapter. It's not a real long chapter, but there is a focus that I want to bring out. And uh, let's just, let's seek the Lord here. Let's, let's get into it. Verse 1, now there happened to be there a worthless man whose name was Sheba. What, boy, if you're, going to get, if you're going to be canonized in the Scripture, you'd hope you'd have a better uh, description than that. But, but that's who he is, the son of uh, Bitri, a Benjaminite. And he blew the trumpet and said, We have no portion in David, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man do his tent. Tents, O Israel. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bitri. But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. Now, Scripture doesn't tell us very much about Sheba. He's only mentioned here in this chapter, but he is mentioned nine times. So he is the central figure of chapter 20. And uh, we don't know much, but what we do know is that we can assume that this man had influence. He had power because he stood up and called Israel, the ten tribes of Israel, away from the loyalty to David, and they followed. Many, not all, but many followed. So he was a man that had considerable power and influence. What we do know also is that he was a Benjaminite, uh, which places him in the same tribe as King Saul. This is significant to the story because there were still probably under David's reign many who were part of the Benjaminite tribe who still had a place in their heart for Saul. 
and were frustrated with the ten tribes of Judah who went along with the restoration of David's reign as king over all of Israel. So here, maybe some of those are the ones that are rising up. They're finding an opportunity to rise up. So Sheba saw an opportunity to, to, to defy the king's authority over uh, Benjamin and the other tribes. And it says in verse 1b, uh, we have no portion in David. We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Every man to his tents, O Israel. So what he's doing is declaring that the northern tribes had no part in David's reign or David's realm or David's kingdom, which was eerily similar to the cry of the northern tribes in 1 Kings after they decide it's time to pull away from Judah completely. When the two under uh, uh, Jeroboam, the two tribes were divided. They said the exact same thing. Uh, so Sheba's declaration that the northern tribes had no part in David's realm is similar. 1 Kings chapter 12. Write it down if you will. 1 Kings 12, verse 16. I'll read it for you. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance uh, in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel, look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. Almost word for word. So they probably remembered back to what Sheba had said and how he was successful in drawing people away from David. And so they basically uh, copied. They, they were saying the same thing when the kingdom was divided. We've been saying for several weeks how all of these underpinnings, all these issues that are coming up in David's life, all of these uh, are, are really the precursor to the divided kingdom. Now that would happen long after he's gone. But we can, we can place some blame on David for the, the, uh, the cause of, for some of the cause of the divided kingdom. Uh, now, this is interesting to me. Sheba based his rebellion against David on three principles that really are <laughs> common to usurpers. Uh, when somebody commits sedition, uh, these three principles will always be present. You're going to find it. Even in our modern day, when there's an uprising, when people uh, pull away from the loyalty to the leader, you'll hear, to some degree, these three common excuses, okay? Here's what they'll say. First, look what, look what Sheba said. We have no portion in David, okay? So he's denying the king's sovereignty, that's the first thing you have to do. If you're going to get people to follow you away from the king, you have to somehow uh, make them, uh, give them a disillusionment about the kingdom. So we, he's denying the king's sovereignty. He claimed that David had no right to reign over him or over the ten tribes of Israel. Now remember, just, just as an overview, remember that it's Judah and then it's the ten tribes, <laughs> basically is what's happening. And it's been going that way for quite some time. And they're going back and forth. They're fighting. Even last chapter, they were at each other. And they were trying to decide who was more loyal to David. Well, now the truth comes out. Um, secondly, another principle that's common to usurpers, uh, and we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. So first you have to try and 
and deny the king's sovereignty. He has no right to be king. Secondly, here Sheba is devaluing the king's identity. David's, he, he speaks of David's father. He, he, he says, we have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. Jesse? Who was Jesse? He was a humble farmer. Okay? So she was pointing out that David's humble beginning doesn't meet the standard for him to be considered royalty. So in human terms, in human terms, not in God's terms, God called David. God is the one who anointed David the next king. But they could care less about the spiritual implications. They could care less about following God. They're just looking at it from a human perspective. In a human perspective, who are you? You're just coming from a, a sheep farmer's family. And so then third... Every man to his tents, O Israel. So Sheba is now taking action to go his own way. It starts with words, but you know, people can use words, and they're going to use words against you. Uh, they're going to use words against what it is, the cause that you stand for, that you are loyal to. Um, people will stand against the church, and they'll use words. happens every day. We shouldn't be surprised when people speak against the church. That's not a big deal. It happens all the time. But when they take action against the church, now, now you've raised the bar. Now you've, you've, you've really begun to undermine the work of God. And that's what he does. The third thing he does, every man do his tents, O Israel. So not only is he leading a rebellion by talking about David in a negative way, but now he's calling everybody around him to action. It's one thing to have an opinion, it's another thing to act on it. And here's a great question for us to consider tonight as we try to make the Word of God relevant. We don't have to try, it's there. It's just bringing it out. But here's the question. Is it possible that at times you have been led into falsehood or fault-finding or a negative report about someone else? that someone else was being the Sheba, and they were bad-mouthing. They were murmuring. They were uh, fault-finding someone else, and they came to you with it, and you listened. You received it. You're, you're in part with them. You are now, they're your partner, because you're, re you're, you're receiving a negative report. Do you see it for what it is? Do you have the discernment, the spiritual discernment? And believe me, I, I, I don't think that God leaves people without spiritual discernment. Now, discernment is a gift. Some have a gift of discernment. That's different. But all of us, as we know the Word of God, God, by the Holy Spirit, shows us how to use what we know. That's called spiritual wisdom. And God, along with wisdom, gives us discernment. We take what we know from the Word and we... We consider that. We filter everything through what we know of the Word of God. So when someone's coming to you grumbling about something, complaining, murmuring, gossiping, you're able to stop them on the spot. I had a man who did that back in Palm Beach Gardens. Someone came to him behind my back. I had gone out of town uh, on a, on a, uh, uh, to preach a revival somewhere, and they came to him, and they, oh, did you know that Greg, blah, blah, blah. And they, it was... It was something that they were upset with me about. And he stopped them right there. They couldn't even finish their sentence. And he said, now, before you speak about this, have you spoken to Greg about this? 
Well, he won't listen. He said, no, no, you must go to Greg. Now, if you go to Greg and he doesn't listen, then come back and talk to me and we'll both go to Greg. So I didn't know any of this, and it was about a month later, and he came to me, and he said, hey, did such and such, did they ever come to you about any matter between the two of you? I said, no. And he said, okay, we have a problem. We have a problem. Because they were out to undermine, and we did flesh it out and found out that they had, they had, uh, taken, a, they had taken something that I had said and they tried to turn it into something that was negative when it wasn't. And, uh, and so ultimately, uh, we, we dealt with it as an elder team. Uh, the elders did a little church discipline. But see, that person did the right thing. They didn't just receive what Sheba was saying. Sheba is not going to give David the benefit of the doubt. Whenever you want to attack someone or undermine them, or you want to usurp their authority, if they're in a position of authority, what you have to do first in order to get there, you have to demonize them by making them look like a bad person. Then you feel justified in doing what you're about to do, which is wrong, and you'll draw others to join you in doing it. And that's exactly what Sheba is doing here. So the question is, uh, how do you respond when someone comes to you about someone else or about a matter of ministry? Do you listen to a negative report? Or do you stop them and say, this is not appropriate for us to have this discussion. I have nothing to do with that. You need to go to the person. And if they give you that excuse, well, they won't listen. Well, then you go, and if they don't listen, come back, and we'll go together. Now you're holding their feet to the fire, which is, listen, that, that is good, sound church discipline. We, we're not supposed, look, there's three types of Christians in every church, every church. In the early church, they had them. Paul is the one that addresses the three types of Christians, or uh, two types of Christians, three types of people. The first type of person is not a Christian. It is an uh, ungodly person. And there's two types of ungodly people. They're not spiritual. They're not of the Lord. They're not saved. But they're in the church. And one type is a, uh, is a religion person. They're, they're very much a, they're into religion. So they're practicing a religion, but they don't have a relationship with Christ. And some of those religious people serve on boards and committees in churches. Some of them were in the early church. We could, we're not going to take time, but we could do a study on that. I could show you those who were more religious than they were in tune with what the Spirit of God was doing, and they caused trouble in the church. Paul addressed them. And, and then there's, there's the, the, the carnal Christian. So you've got, you got the ungodly, and then you've got the carnal. The carnal are babes in Christ. Paul addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, he said, brothers, so he said, you're, you're in the body, you are saved. Brothers, why are you still uh, needing to suckle on your mother's milk when you should be maturing? You're carnal, you're fleshly, still, even after coming to Christ. 
you need to grow up. And there's two types of carnal Christians. There's uh, babes in Christ. Everybody starts out as a carnal Christian. And that's not a problem. Nobody gets saved in that moment. They are spiritually, you know, experientially prepared for life. Nobody's a spiritual giant when they get saved. But, but they have to grow up. And we need to be patient with them as they grow up. There are new believers who get saved, and they truly have been saved by Christ, and yet they still are rough around the edges. And they'll say things they shouldn't say at times, and they'll, they'll uh, get impatient over things, and they'll just show signs of immaturity. But that's what spiritual mothers and fathers are for, to come alongside them, to help them. And, and with that help, they begin to move from being a spiritual babe to a spiritual young man or young woman. Now they're gaining some maturity about them. That's a good thing. So there's nothing wrong with that. When a babe in Christ, what do babies do? I should know. I had four, uh, and then we have uh, nine grandbabies and one on the way this December, the Lord willing. Uh, I'll tell you what they do. Uh, they poopy in their diapers, and they do it quite regularly. And nobody complains. Nobody says when a baby, you know, messes a diaper, oh my goodness, when is this child going to stop making a mess? No, you expect a baby to do that. You gladly, well, maybe not gladly, but you take that child and you change the diaper. That's on you. That's how we as the body should be with new believers. We should be glad to help them grow. But there's not just spiritual babes who are carnal. There are spiritual brats. And those are the babes who never grew up. They're saved, but they're brats. They don't receive from other believers who try to help them. They don't want to grow. I just want to do things my way. And they become a real sticking point in the life of the church. And so you've got the ungodly, you've got religious people that are ungodly who are in the church, serving in the church in some cases, and you've got just downright nasty ungodly people who could care less about God, and they'll tell you that. But then you've got carnal, spiritual babes, and spiritual brats. And the third category is you have those who are spiritual mothers and fathers. You have those who are growing in the Lord. Every church needs spiritual moms and dads. It is the spiritual moms and dads who grow the spiritual babes into spiritual young men and women. And it's the spiritual young men and women who desire to grow, to keep growing. They're the ones who become spiritual moms and dads. A lot of churches are missing spiritual moms and dads. Or they have some, but they're not helping the young ones to grow. They've already served. I've done my time. Like it's a prison sentence to serve in the church. And now they just sit back. The Bible says that as an older adult who's saved in the church, there's never a time where you retire. 
spiritual mothers and fathers, you are to come alongside the young ones and help them. Point them along the way. Love them enough to pour into them, those who want to learn. Don't ever stop doing that. Everybody here ought to be mentoring someone. Everyone here should be discipling someone if you're saved. You say, well, I don't know enough to disciple people. I just don't feel like I'm well prepared for that. I, I can't do that. Everybody here, you disciple people in what you know. You say, well, I don't know much. Okay, then tell them what you know. And get serious about learning more and living more. And keep growing and developing so that you can even tell others more. Does that make sense? There's no excuse for any member of God's family to not be pouring into others. Mentoring, discipling. Well, what you have here is a man who probably is still very much in the camp of Saul. And he is now seeing an opportunity to come against David. He's taking action. G. Campbell Morgan said this about this particular text. He said, this story should teach us that popular and plausible catchwords ought to be received and acted upon with great caution. When someone comes and they've got this word about that person or this word about the church, and I'm really struggling with this ministry, why blah, 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 and they're going on and on about it. He said, they're using certain words to gather attention, to get people to pay attention. He said, you need to be very careful listening to those people. Because it's not about what they're saying on the surface, it's about the intent of their heart that they're not telling you. Sheba is really wanting David to fall, to fail. Sheba has his own ulterior motives for what he's saying. And so that's what we have to be careful of. Now look, if you will, at the first part of verse 2. We haven't even gotten to verse 2 yet, okay? We, I promise we'll move along better here. So all the men of Israel withdrew from David and followed Sheba, the son of Bichri. So Sheba was successful in drawing away many, probably a good portion of the northern tribes. And now David has what? Another civil war to deal with. He had one with his son. He had one before that with King Saul that he avoided. He stayed away. He allowed the Lord to handle Saul. He would never raise a finger against Saul. His son Absalom came up with the same rebellious usurper spirit. David did not try to do anything where he should have because that's a different relationship. That's your son. David was a lousy father, so he didn't deal with his son growing up. And when Absalom tried to steal the throne from him, David just left. He left it in the hands of the Lord. He was broken and humbled by the experience. And now... Now we've got another guy. This is just after David said, I'm not going to go back to the throne unless I know that everyone is in, is in unity about my return. And everyone said, the 10 tribes said, yeah, okay, we're with you, go do it. And now just as quickly as they said that, they're rising up again. Uh, this is why, it's, it's just to me, this is interesting. I wanna pause here just for a second longer. Uh, the apostle Paul, had to deal with gossip in the early church. As wonderful as the early church was, 
with all the things that were happening, the Holy Spirit pouring out, uh, coming upon believers, empowering them to be witnesses, and all the good that was happening, meeting in homes, and day by day, God was adding to their number. And it grows from 3,000 to 5,000, and finally just multitudes. So all of this good stuff going on. Yet in that same church, as the church expands, gossip finds a root. Murmuring, negative talk found a root in the life of God's church. And I think that that's, that's true today. It's never stopped. It'll always be there. There will always be people who are ungodly, who are in the church. They're religion people. There are always going to be carnal brats who will not grow up, and they're just going to gossip. It's just going to always be the case. And Paul dealt with it. You see, a gossip is someone who has privileged information about others and proceeds to reveal that information to those who have no business knowing about it. That's a gossip. It's important that we distinguish between gossip and sharing information because we should share information that can be appropriate or it can be inappropriate. First, we have to look at the intent. If you want to distinguish between gossip and sharing info, look at the intent. Gossips often have the goal of building themselves up by making others look bad, exalting themselves as the source of knowledge. It's not about the Lord. It's not about the Lord's work. It's about them. You've got to be discerning to see that for what it is and not be sucked into it. Secondly, we have to look at the type of information that's being shared. Gossips will speak of the faults and failings of others or reveal potentially embarrassing or shameful uh, details regarding the lives of others without their knowledge or approval. Even if they mean no harm, it's still gossip. It's gossip. I've given you that illustration, and it's just because it's so common. I've been pastoring for a lot of years, and I see this. You know, you get a phone call. And you're on the prayer chain. That's a good thing. And somebody calls and they say, hey, we need to, I'm, I'm calling you because we need to be praying for sister, you know, whoever, sister, you know, uh, uh, sister Kathy and her husband. Oh, oh, okay. It, what's going on that we should pray? Well, let me tell you. And they take a garbage truck and they back it up to the ear through a phone line, through a cell phone. Beep, 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 beep. And dump garbage in your ear. And you have the opportunity to stop them in their tracks. No, 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 no. We're not going to talk. That is not a prayer concern. That is gossip. Do they know you're saying this about them? Did they give you permission to share this for prayer? You call the person out lovingly. Why? Because you're helping a spiritual babe to become a spiritual young man or woman. And by the way, when I use those terms, babe and spiritual young man and woman, I'm not talking about age. I'm talking about spiritual maturity. You can be 60 years old and be a babe. If you got saved, you know, two years ago and you're 60, you have a chance to become a young man or a woman, spiritually speaking. Amen? 
you got to stop these people from this stuff. It's always been, it always will be. Now, I'm glad that we can talk about this tonight because we don't have a problem with this at Vero Bible Fellowship, at least nothing that's causing any significant problems. We don't have that. I'm thankful. If I was having to deal with this because we're in the middle of a big mess, that would be different. We're not. So I thank the Lord for that. But that doesn't mean, for don't think for a second that the enemy wouldn't try to start this in our body. And we need to be prepared for it. So it's still gossip, even if we're sharing uh, certain types of information that on the surface it seems like, well, maybe we should be sharing this so we can pray. Now, come on, what's the motive behind your heart? What's the intent for sharing that? In the book of Romans, Paul reveals the sinful nature and lawlessness of mankind. He stated that God poured out His wrath on those who rejected His laws because they had turned away from God's instruction and guidance. He gave them over to their sinful natures. And then, in Romans chapter 1, verse 29, Paul lists the sins that these people have committed, and it includes gossip and slander. It's right there. Those are two sins that God is withholding wrath upon those who are sinners, who are lost. Um, and then 2 Corinthians, Corinthians, write this down, 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 20. Paul said, For I fear that perhaps when I come I may find you not as I wish, and that you may find me not as you wish, that perhaps there may be quarreling, jealousy, anger, hostility, slander, gossip, conceit, and disorder. He's speaking to the church in Corinth. This is, not, this is not the community of Corinth. This is the church of Jesus Christ in Corinth. These things were real. Paul cautions widows against entertaining the habit of gossip and of being idle. A widow might have, not every today it might be a lot different, but back then a widow would have extra time on her hands. And he said, look, you know, idle ground or idle time is a playground for the devil. Don't, don't just sit around in idleness. Serve the young. Help them. Get involved so that you won't get caught up in gossip. In 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 13 through 15. 1 Timothy 5, 13 through 15. Besides that, they learn to be idlers going about from house to house, and not only idlers, but also gossips and busybodies saying what they should not. They're saying what they should not speak. So I would have younger widows marry, bear children, do something that takes up time, keeps you from listening to all this nonsense, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Now, he's speaking to widows specifically because in that day there seemed to be a problem. I would say that for anybody who's idle. I don't care who you are. It's true for anyone. What's one of the best ways to guard against idle time and gossip and slander. Serve in the church. Get busy. Use your gifts for God's glory. Now you won't have time to listen to that nonsense. And listen to what he says. So I, I would have younger widows marry, bear children, manage their households, and give the adversary no occasion for slander. Listen, for some in the church have already strayed after Satan. Gossip, murmuring, negative fault-finding, all that stuff. That is Satan's work in the church. 
So Paul states that widows should get into the habit of going from home to home looking for something to occupy their idleness. Proverbs 20.19. And we're talking about Sheba here. This is, here's a guy who is doing exactly what, it's opposite of God's will. And guess what? This is the cool thing about this particular story. Uh, when you are set against the will of God to do the opposite of God's will, in the end, you run into God's will. And in Sheba's case, it ain't pretty. Nobody wins when they stand against the will of God. That's why you don't want to entertain them, because you don't want to be on that side. Remember Gamaliel in the study in Acts 6, where they're ready to take Peter and John and stone them and just beat them up? And he said, whoa, ho, hey, wait a second. Let them go. And if the people disperse, then these guys, it was just their flesh doing it, no big deal. But if you go after them and they are representing God, whoa, now you are opposing God. So even Gamaliel, who was not a believer in Christ, but he had wisdom, one of the great Jewish rabbis, and he saw what we're talking about in the New Testament. It's a great example of that. But, but Proverbs 20, 19, whoever goes about slandering reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with a simple, I like this, with a simple babbler. Don't associate with babblers. That's pretty good. It doesn't mean that they cannot be a friend. It doesn't mean that you have to break all fellowship with them. It means you don't entertain their babble. Call them out when it happens. Lovingly, but call them out. One of two things will happen. They'll either stop it, and now you're helping them to grow, or they won't want you to be their friend. Well, guess what? They were never your friend. They were just trying to find people who would listen to their nonsense, their babble. Don't let them do that. Don't let them get away with it. In, in, in Ephesians 4, Paul put it like this, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another. How can you end up with gossip if you're bearing with one another? You won't. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. That is the goal of God's people. It's not to tear people down. It's to lift people up. And so somebody once said, I, a pastor once said, it takes no size to criticize. It's true. All you're doing is trying to build yourself up. When somebody comes to you and they're criticizing somebody else to you, listen to me now. Think about this. What do you think they're saying to others about you? Don't be taken by their babbling game. Okay, verse 2, But the men of Judah followed their king steadfastly from the Jordan to Jerusalem. So, so while the ten tribes are once again adrift from David's leadership, the men of Judah remain loyal to the king. Always remember that when others desert or divide, it gives you a greater opportunity to demonstrate loyalty. You can stand against the current. 
stand for what's right. You don't have to be floating down the stream with all the others who are being carried away by Babel. The only kind of fish that moves with the current is a dead fish. If a fish is living, it's constantly fighting against the flow of the current. That's who we are called to be. Amen? When you come into a room, spiritually speaking, you are not called to be a thermometer. Find out what the temperature of that room is and reflect it. Be a chameleon Christian. Be like the people that are in the room. No, you're called to be a thermostat. You come into the room and set the temperature. If the bar is low, raise it for the cause of Jesus Christ. Amen. Always demonstrate. It's a, it's, it's, every day we're given opportunities. We can either listen to the babbler or we can stand for Christ and do it God's way. So it's good for us to imitate the loyalty that Judah showed to David. Uh, we need to do the same with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He said, don't gossip. Well, let's stand on that. Amen? And verse 3, And David came to his house at Jerusalem, and the king took the ten concubines whom he had left to care for the house and put them in a house under guard and provided for them, but did not go into them. So they were shut up until the day of their death, living as if in widowhood. Uh, mm. If you remember, David took on many concubines. He took on many wives. Everything he did there was against God's will, God's, God's way. He literally broke the law doing what he was doing. And when he raised his kids, his kids were raised to break the law as well. And then finally, when Absalom decided to overthrow his father, he was counseled by one of his advisors to establish himself as the new king. We're going to set up a tent on the veranda of the palace and we'll bring the ten concubines that David left behind to care for the palace. We're going to have them go into that tent and you will sleep with each one of them in front of the people in order to say, my father's rule is over. And he did that. Now David has returned to Jerusalem. He is the king. And for those ten concubines who took care of the palace while he was gone, who had been raped by Absalom, David no longer had relations with them, but he put them in a house. And he let them live out their days like widows. This is a sad, sad situation. You see, David saw these women as defiled by his son. He didn't see that when he took them as concubines, he defiled them. Isn't it interesting how we can easily find the sins in others and we don't see our own sin? I mean, really, honestly, we could get really upset with David about this, but uh, look no further than the person sitting in your chair. We all do this all the time. 
We so easily recognize the sin of others and we can't see the same sin in ourselves. That's why the Lord oftentimes will break us. He will humble us. The Bible says, look, you don't have to wait until God humbles you. In fact, the Scripture says, humble yourself in the sight of the Lord, and in due season He will lift you up. That's the way the Lord would like for it to happen. He would rather you humble yourself. He would rather you say, rather than me focus on the sins of others, I'm going to stay in my own backyard. I'm going to only look at the junk in my trunk and not get focused on other people's junk. But see, our human nature, our tendency is to focus on others. It makes us feel better about us. What is that? That's pharisaical. That's what the Pharisees did as a living. They set the rules, the laws, according to their own righteousness. That's why Jesus kept saying to them, you say, but I say unto you. You're saying that a man should not commit adultery. I'm saying if you even look at a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Jesus raised the bar. You and I have to be so careful that we're not lowering the bar for ourselves while keeping the bar high for everyone else. That would be a sign of pride in our lives. We need to humble ourselves. We're no better than anybody else and nobody's better than us. We're all equal at the foot of the cross in desperate need of the pardon of our Savior. Amen? One theologian said that if he gave them for other men to marry, if he gave the ten concubines, if he gave each one of them to some man to marry, they might have become dangerous to his state. Look, all of this reeks of sinful living. It's David covering his own rear end. It's not David doing, thing God's, doing things God's way so that God is glorified. This is about David this is not about God. This is a far cry for what God calls us to in the sacred vow of marriage. Paul in Ephesians 5, you know, you, you know the passage about wives submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Husbands, uh, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then he closes it down, uh, Paul said towards the end of that in chapter 5, he said, this is a mystery. And he says, and I want to tell you what the mystery is about marriage, is that it's a picture of Christ and His church. David was to live his life in such a way as to draw a picture of God and His people, Israel. David made it about himself. And this is what's happening here. These women are going to live out their days suffering because David, when he was young, went with his own lustful desire over God's will. Verse 4, Then the king said to Amasa, Call the men of Judah together to me within three days and be here yourself. So Amasa went to summon Judah, but he delayed beyond the set time that he had been appointed him. Mm, bad mistake, Amasa. He was Absalom's former general, and David made him the commander of his army as a conciliatory move after the death of Absalom. 
David wanted to win all of Absalom's people back to himself. Again, this is David acting on David's desires. David knew that time was of the essence when he said to Amasa, call the men of Judah together and within three days be here yourself. We're going to battle against Sheba for what he's done. He's rallied the northern tribes against us. We have to go to battle in three days. Amasa, has not, he's not an experienced, battle-tested uh, commander, and so he procrastinates. He puts it off. He doesn't show up in three days ready for battle. That's the problem here. And David said to Abishai, Now Sheba the son of Bichri will do us more harm than Absalom. Take your Lord's servants. Who would the Lord's servants be? That is actually the special guard that would, the personal guard that surrounded David. Take my personal guard, Abishai, and pursue Sheba lest he get himself to fortified cities and escape from us. And they went out after, after him, Joab's men and the Cherethites and the Palathites and all the mighty men. Now, when it says Joab's men, don't think that that means that Joab is still commanding. He is not commanding. It's just that these men were faithful to Joab, and many of them are the mighty men of David, but they're faithful to Joab. So he's saying, gather those who in the past have been faithful to Joab and go out. And in fact, Joab was one of them. Joab went into this battle dressed like any other soldier. He didn't go as a commander. But Joab is still faithful to David, even though David gave his position to Amasa. Interesting. So instead of leaning upon Amasa, David gives these orders to Abishai. He was the commander over David's personal guard. Now, verse 8, when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, Amasa came to meet them. So what's the deal there? Well, Amasa didn't want to miss out on the battle because it might make his name great. So I'm going to show up. It's just that I'm not going to do all the hard work beforehand to get ready for the battle. So he just shows up. Now, Joab was wearing a soldier's garment. There it is. And over it was a belt with a sword and its sheath fastened on his thigh. And as he went forward, it fell out. Okay, so Joab has set this thing up so that the, the sword is, is tilted back. And when he goes up and he leans forward towards Amasa, who's the commander, the sword automatically just falls out. Okay? And Joab said to Amasa, Is it well with you, my brother? And Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him, which, which I've learned is a, was a common practice then. You, you'd grab him by the beard and pull him in and kiss him. That doesn't sound like a very affectionate way of handling. I don't want Remy to ever do that to me. I can tell, of course, mine's not long enough to grab, you know. But, uh, and Joab took Amasa by the beard with his right hand to kiss him. But Amasa did not observe the sword that was in Joab's hand. So Joab struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails to the ground without striking a second blow, and he died. Then Joab and, Ab and Abishai his brother pursued Sheba, the son of Bitri. So Joab uh, is very much a loyalist to David, willing to go and fight against Sheba, but he ain't putting up with this knucklehead who took his position, who can't lead the army. We got to get this guy out of the way. How many times, now look, this is not an excuse for Joab. He is a ruthless killer at times. But 
How many times did Joab bail David out? Because David didn't see what was coming. He didn't have this, the discernment with his own son. So who took care of business? Joab. Well, that's what he does here. He takes care of business again. Okay, verse 8, when they were at the great stone that is in Gibeon, a massa came, and so Joab takes him out. He struck him with it in the stomach and spilled his entrails. We're going to see in just a moment. The man didn't die right away with his entrails laying out. Okay? Uh, so what's the, what, 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 what he's saying? Amasa didn't assemble the army of Judah quickly enough. And so he came out just in time to be seen, to go out into the battlefield, look like he was leading when he wasn't. And Joab said, ain't happening, bro. You're done. And he took him out. But the out, this, is, this is the outcome that, that Joab had planned. This is a murder. That's what this is. The man who replaced him as commander of David's armies has now been taken out. Verse 11, And one of Joab's young men took his stand by Amasa and said, Whoever favors Joab and whoever is for David, let him follow Joab. And Amasa lay wallowing in his blood in the highway, and anyone who came by, saw, uh, seeing, by seeing him stopped. And when the man saw that all the people stopped, this guy who had said, let's, let's follow Joab, he carried Amasa out of the highway into the field. So instead of on the path where people are walking by looking, he took him out in the field, dragging him with his entrails, dragging behind. I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to be gory, but I'm telling you this is what's going on. And he threw a garment over him. And when he was taken out of the highway, all the people went on after Joab to pursue Sheba, the son of Bittri. And Sheba passed through all the tribes of Israel to Abel of Beth Makkah. And all the Bittrites assembled and followed him in. So the very thing that David was concerned about and why he told Amasa, go ahead, assemble the army. We're leaving in three days. And he didn't do it. David said, because we don't want this guy to find his city, and then go in and lock himself in. And now he's fortified against us. Well, that's what happened. Now for all of his ruthless devotion to David, Joab is still following David, and he's a true leader. So, he, so this is interesting to me. Uh, David, at this point, doesn't know that Amasa's been taken out. David doesn't know that uh, who's in He thinks Amasa's still there, you know, in charge with Abishai. But no. It's the men of Joab who rose up and said, we're going to let Joab lead us. Now that tells you what kind of a leader Joab was. He was a great leader, okay? Don't, be, don't, don't miss that. They are loyal to David and they are loyal to Joab. Why? Because they know that Joab is loyal to David, okay? He's a bit rough around the edges, but, uh, but he is loyal. Verse 15, And all the men who were with Joab came and besieged him in Abel of Beth Macaw. So, so uh, they cast up a mound against the city, and it stood against the rampart, and they were battering the wall to throw it down. So now uh, Joab and his men are going to take out the city wall so they can get over and go find this guy inside and kill him. Then a wise woman called from the city, Listen, listen, tell Joab, Come here that I may speak to you. And he came near her, and the woman said, Are you Joab? And he answered, I am. And then she said to him, Listen to the words of your servant. And he answered, I am listening. 
And then she said, they used to say in former times, let them but ask counsel at Abel. And so they settled a matter. I am one of those who are peaceable and faithful to is in Israel. You seek to destroy a city that is a mother in Israel. In other words, she knows what they're going to do. She's like, don't destroy this city. It's a, it's, it's has great history. Okay. Why will you swallow up the heritage of the Lord? And Joab answered, far be it from me, far be it that I should swallow up or destroy. That is not true. But a man of the hill country of Ephraim called Sheba, the son of Bitri, had lift, has lifted up his hand against King David. Give him up alone, and I will withdraw from the city. And the woman said to Joab, Behold, his head shall be thrown to you over the wall. <laughs> she don't play. <laughs> uh, now that's quite a dramatic ending to a story, isn't it? It started with a guy who rose up against God's will, and he gossiped, and he drew people to follow him against God. And in the end, he paid a severe price for it. You would think that the ending would have Joab and his mighty men catching up to Sheba, looking him in the eye, and then running a sword through him. Nope. It was a wise old woman who cried out from the wall of the city where he had taken refuge. Listen, siege warfare is a, it's a terrible ordeal for the citizens of a besieged city. Because what happens, the army on the outside of the city, the fortified city, they cut off all the supplies. There's no supply line. I mean, President Biden wouldn't know what to do in that situation. Um, no supply line. No water coming in. No food coming in. Nothing. It's a terrible ordeal for the people that live in the city. She knew that. She's trying to cut that off at the pass. Just tell me why you're here. We'll take care of it. And, and verse 22, Then the woman went to all the people in her wisdom, and they cut off the head of Sheba, the son of Bitri, and threw it out to Joab. So he blew the trumpet, and they dispersed from the city every man to his home, and Joab returned to Jerusalem to the king. So Sheba probably thought he was safe within the walls of that city because of his, it was his people that lived there. But listen, no one is safe when they run up against God's will. We can think we're so cool. We've got it all figured out. But when we stand against the will of the Lord, somebody's going to go down, and it ain't God. It'll either happen in this life or in the life to come. You will lose when you don't stand with the Lord. The reason why we share the gospel, and it's a reason why when people reject the gospel, we don't stop sharing because we never know the one who's going to say, I want to follow the Lord. We just keep right on sharing. So that put an end to the rebellion of Sheba. But the division between Judah and the other tribes of Israel remained. So after the death of Solomon, there was a civil war that permanently divided the United Kingdom into two nations, the southern kingdom of Judah, the northern kingdom of Israel. That's already started, I mean, in terms of the groundwork's been laid. It's not going to go away. It's not going to get better. It's going to end up worse. By the way, 
as a nation. You know, we look at, at the polarization of this nation on ridiculous things. Some of it's ridiculous. And we're being told it's the most important issue that we must deal with. Says who? The Lord or man who has ulterior motives for what he wants? We need to be very careful not to be led astray and get caught up spending all of our time on man's agenda when the Lord has an agenda for you to fulfill. Namely, that you would be part of His church, that you would be in love with those who belong to His church, and that you would share the gospel with those who do not. And we would live our lives in such a way as to bring glory to the name of the Father. Verse 23, now Joab was in command of all the army of Israel. So now he's back in command. Joab, or David allowed Joab to take over again. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was in command of the Cherethites and the Pelethites. And Adoram was in charge of the forced labor. And Jehoshaphat, the son of Ahilud, was the recorder. And Sheba was secretary. And Zadok and Abiathar were the priests. And Ira the Jairite was also David's priest. So what do we take from all the names and all that stuff at the end of the chapter? Well, the greatness of David's kingdom was that the Spirit of God came upon him. But David's greatest strength as a person was that he put good people around him and made up for his shortcomings, for his idiosyncrasies. And he has assembled quite a team. Now, it's also interesting to me that David, a man after God's own heart, the man who wrote the sweet Psalms would need a personal priest, somebody to go between him and God. And he had that. Aren't you glad that you live after the work of Christ on the cross, that you can boldly go into the throne room of God and receive help in your time of need, that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation. You're no longer having to have a priest represent you Bible says in the New Testament, don't call any man father. It doesn't mean that your earthly dad shouldn't be called your father. He's talking about capital F. Don't give anybody a position of spiritual father other than your spiritual father in heaven. And we live in that day that we can worship the Lord Himself and have personal intimacy with our Lord. What a blessing. So, good chapter. We'll be in chapter 21, uh, not next week. Obviously, Thanksgiving Day, next week, next Thursday. So, we'll come back the following week and pick up chapter 21. Any questions further that we have here? I will tell you that uh, uh, I will not... Let's see. Is there... The, I think it's the first week of December, is it, that we'll meet again? It's in the first week of December. Is that right? Let me make sure that I know what I'm talking about. Yes, that'll be December the 2nd. I will not be with you uh, until probably March. Um, I'm going to be teaching on Friday mornings at the Women's Refuge <laughs> and uh, uh, serving there, teaching the Bible verse by verse with those ladies. I, I don't want to have to prepare both lessons. I don't want you to be left with somebody who's not able to give full attention. And so um, I know that uh, one of our elders, Scott Walker, is willing to help. 
to whatever degree he's able to give teaching to this group during December. And then coming into the first of the year, uh, we actually have another member of our church who's going to teach on Thursday nights. We're going to break away from this series, and he's going to teach, do an apologetics study for 10 weeks. And uh, that will be a powerful time, learning how to speak to other people about biblical questions that they might have. So it's going to be very meaningful, very helpful to you, and I hope that you'll be part of that, okay? All right, so that's what's happening. Uh, December, January, February, and early part of March, we will be in a different uh, venue, uh, same place, but different, uh, pr different focus. We won't be doing the verse-by-verse -verse study. Uh, you will in December. Scott, you'll teach verse-by-verse -verse in 2 Samuel. So hopefully we can finish it out. And uh, then come the first of the year, um, it will be uh, apologetics for two and a half months, okay? All right, Lord bless you. The Lord bless each one of you here tonight. Thank you for coming, and God bless you. Father, thank you that you have loved us to the degree that if we were surfers and the wave coming in were your love, it would absolutely wipe us out. Nobody here would be able to stay on that surfboard and ride that wave. That's what you want. You want to overflow us. You want to lavish your love upon us. And the scripture says that your love is steadfast, meaning it will never change. And so, Lord, may we just, may we just get lost, as the hymn says, in the love of the Lord. May we live our lives out of that experience and may that love just well up in us and compel us to love others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you.